Blog Talk Radio. everybody doing today? Well, I got uh, about three stories extra, which means there's no way I'll get to all this stuff, um, because I'm going to be babbling for hours and hours and hours here, but we got new polling out. Um, You're going to see why it is that people support Joe Biden, in their own words, um, quite scary, if I don't say so myself. We also have a poll. I mean, they're already doing it. They're already doing the 2024 polls. So you're going to learn. You're going to (laughs) know who the front runner is for the 2024 Democratic primary. Not sure if they asked about the Republican one. If they did, I didn't see it. So anyway, we'll talk about that as well. Um, Democrats are already backing off of the compromise on the compromise when it comes to health care. That's one I'm furious about. We will discuss the Edward Snowden thing. Trump is kind of teasing everybody and he's like, I don't know. I look very closely at whether or not we should pardon Edward Snowden. I mean, some people say he was treated very unfairly. I think I have a different take than most people on that one. Um, Again, we'll get to that a little bit later. And yes, the post office will be discussed. The so-called peace deal in the Middle East will be discussed. Uh, Like I said, it's It's a jam-packed show today. So, without further ado, let's get started, and um, we're going to talk about a new poll from Pew Research. So, since we're getting closer and closer to the election, there's been nonstop polls being released asking various questions, and um, Pew is out with a new one. This is something. 
they asked people, hey, why are you supporting either Trump or Biden? Now, they did the standard questions, too, and, you know, I think overall in this particular poll, Biden had like a seven or eight point national lead. Um, but when you got into the specifics, so when you ask people, hey, give me your reason for voting for Biden and give me your reason for voting for Trump, the breakdown really says everything about the dynamic of this election. So when you look at Trump, here's why his people are, are voting for him. 23% say leadership or performance. 21% say his issues or policy positions. 19% say he is not Biden. 17% say he is for the American people and values. 16% say they vote for Republicans all the time and against Democrats. 11% says he tells it like it is or I like his personality. 12% gave an other reason and 13% said I don't know or just refused to answer. Now look at Joe Biden's numbers. The reason why Biden supporters are with him. He is not Trump. 56%. Leadership, performance, 19%. Personality, temperament, 13%. I love this one. His issue or policy positions, only 9%. 7% say they vote for Democrats or against Republicans all the time. Um, he is for the American people and our values, 6%. Other 13% don't know, refused, 14%. So the majority of Joe Biden's supporters are going to vote for him in the 2020 general election simply because he is not Trump. A majority, 56%. Guys, when I look at this result, honestly, my main takeaway is I'm more mad at the media than ever before. Because we knew, the we knew that this was the dynamic for quite a while, but to see it in such stark, clear, black and white numbers is infuriating. Because we said all along, when you go back and look at the polls of Bernie Sanders, you go issue for issue, and Americans loved Every single position, virtually every single position, bar maybe one or two of Bernie Sanders. They even liked him personally as like, you know, the angry old grandpa, but somebody who you deeply trust and believe in. He, he was the most liked politician in the entire country. So when Biden started to pull away, everybody was like, wait, whoa, 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 hold on here. The guy who came out of the gate super hot you know, was doing really well, all the polls reflect that he's liked more, how come he's not winning? Well, the bottom line is, the main reason people were voting in the primary, and now this is translating over into the general, is their perception of electability. So in other words, if you asked individual voters, they would say, listen, my heart's with Bernie, I love Bernie, my brain is with Bernie, but I've been convinced because of all the chatter that he just can't beat Trump, and we got to get Trump out of office, so i got to go with something safer. So I'm going to vote. It's like this meta question. I'm going to vote for the person that I think other people would feel safe with and would maybe be safest against Trump. Guys, we did this in 2016 already. That's what Hillary Clinton was, and she lost. 
And so they're doing the same thing here. People just went with electability, just went with who they thought would have a better chance of beating Trump. But if people just bought for, voted for excuse me, who they agree with, it would have been Bernie, and it would have been Bernie by a landslide. So this is, hurts my soul. And the reason why I said I blame the media is because who planted that idea in the heads of the American people? That, I mean, listen, you might like the guy, but what are you going to do? He's an extremist. He's a radical. He's far left. He's crazy. It's the media. The media always looked down their nose at Bernie Sanders. Always were condescending. Always talked about him as if he's some sort of sideshow or a joke. They just never treated him as like a serious, viable candidate. So it's this like condescension from the media. This idea that you might like him, but that's irrelevant because there's no chance he's going to win. That translated into reality. That translated into reality where people felt like, hey, maybe they're right. Maybe I am one of the only ones who really likes him. Maybe I am one of the only people who listens to him when he talks about the issues and I nod in agreement every single time. Maybe the, maybe the media's right. Maybe the media's right. We know what happened. We know what the results were. We know that Biden ended up running away with it, but the reason he ran away with it, and this is according to every poll, is electability. Well, now here we are in the general, and the only reason why people are voting for him is because he's not Trump. 56%, that's crushing. Hey, he's just not Trump. What do you want me to say? He's just not Trump. He's just not Trump. And now, by the way, we're seeing the polls tighten. So this poll, like I said, Biden was up seven or eight points nationally. CNN poll just came out yesterday. Biden's only leading nationally by four points. What's the margin of error? Plus or minus four points. The previous CNN poll, Biden was up 14 points nationally. So at least in the CNN poll, Trump had a 10-point surge. Now, you can say, hey, man, that might be an outlier. Fair enough. Very well might be. Also might be the case that the plus 14 one was an outlier. And the real reality of the race is maybe Biden plus five or six. We don't know. We don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. But the race certainly feels like there's been a little bit of a sea change. Because Biden keeps going out there and talking, and people are reminded that he can barely talk. And, you know, eventually this comes to fruition. This number, 56%, 56%. Yeah, he's not Trump. Well, you know, again, this is the playbook we ran in 2016. She's not Trump talking about Hillary. That wasn't enough. That simply wasn't enough. Now, maybe it is enough this time because of the pandemic and the economic collapse. Maybe it is enough. But I fear that all the wrong Lessons are going to be taken away from this if Biden wins. If Biden wins, the neoliberal corporatists will be so self-assured, just so unbelievably arrogant about the fact that they think their ideology is awesome, that it will be beyond insufferable. The neoliberal corporatists will walk away from this going, well, I told you, it's us. We're actually the ones who are liked. That's what will happen. And by the way, if Biden loses, you know what they'll say? They'll say, ah, see, the problem was Biden listened too much to the left. Kamala Harris listened too much to the left. They ran too far left. They needed to be more centrist. I guarantee, hear me now, quote me later. I guarantee you, if Biden and Kamala Harris lose, 
the conventional wisdom in mainstream media and in Washington, D.C. will be, they tried to appease the left too much, and that's why they lost. They went too far left. We needed to run somebody who was more centrist. If you told me after the Nevada caucus we'd be in this nightmare, I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, we were basically three for three, cruising, crushing victory in Nevada. And it was all downhill. And now here we are. General election, Biden versus Trump. More than half of Biden's voters are like, I don't even like him. He's just not Trump, so what am I going to do? I'm tired of the seesaw between corporatist neocons and corporatist neoliberals. I can't handle that anymore. We got to go left. And when I say left, I mean we got to give the American people what they want, what the polls show they're in favor of. There you have it. Joe Biden, as of right now, is trying to coast to the White House off of, hey, I'm not that guy. Okay, next. So here's a new poll that made the rounds on social media. I figured I'd share this with you. Now, I tell you the truth, I don't know, I don't think I've ever heard of this polling company. Is the polling company L-E-G-E-R at the bottom there? Legere? Legere? However you say it. Um, Well, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, Here's just a quick little snapshot of what the 2024 Democratic primary could look like and who's the favorite as of right now. Andrew Cuomo, 21%, number one. Kamala Harris, 19%, number two. Buttigieg, 16%, AOC, 9%, Yang, 8%, Klobuchar, 6%, Booker, 6%, O'Rourke, 6%, Abram, 6%, Gillibrand, 3%. Life is pain. Life is pain. So basically the top three are miserable. The top three are, to one extent or another, neoliberal corporatists. The stranglehold that they have on the party, on on the leadership. By the way, at the same time that all the polls show the people are with us, the left, it's heartbreaking. How many polls do you have to see where Medicare for All is wildly popular? or a living wage, or legalizing marijuana, or ending the wars? How many polls do you have to see where the left is favored? There's a giant disconnect here between what people say they want and who they're supporting in terms of who they vote for. And honestly, the buck stops with us quite a bit because there's something about the left where they've made themselves not palatable even though nominally we have a giant built-in advantage because on the issues, the people are with us. So what's wrong here? What's going on? Where everybody could agree with us on virtually everything, but they're like, obviously I'd never vote for them. (laughs) 
we got to look in the mirror, man. We got to look in the mirror. There's something, we got to go back to basics. I think the left has to go back to basics. You got to put your best foot forward. You have to, the foundation of our campaign has to be the bread and butter. The foundation of all of our campaigns on the left has to be Medicare for all, healthcare for everybody, has to be a living wage, has to be ending the wars and reinvesting here at home. We have to put the economic stuff front and center because that's where we even get, we'll get the entire left in terms of the voters to be in favor of us, but even the overwhelming majority of independents and even some Republicans. But I do think we kind of get lost on the battlefield of the culture war. And that's one of the reasons why people feel like I could never vote for anybody on the left, even though I agree with them on almost everything, is because far too often people want to go out there and virtue signal and get lost in social issues fights where you take a, a, a minority position, minority in terms of not popular position, and then you say, this is the hill I'm going to die on. This happens all the time with the left. And I do think that now there's this perception out there Justified or not, in some cases it's not justified, but in some cases it is justified. There's this perception of, oh, the left are the unserious people who only care about, like, cancel culture bullshit. That's the left. And so people shy away from that. And it reflects in who they're picking nationally for their leaders. I mean, we have a situation where, like, over 80% of the Democratic Party supports Medicare for all, but we have a Biden-Harris ticket. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. The left has to get serious. And by the way, it, it's pathetic that of this entire list, how many are on the list? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten people on the list. There's only two that I'm even remotely interested in at all. And even among the two, they need to make big improvements. Like Yang, if Yang wants the left support, he can never do his, his um, you know, backing off of Medicare for all anymore. He would have to go all in for Medicare for all, no question like be as big of an advocate as Bernie was for it. If he does that, all of a sudden Yang, I think, hops to number one in terms of, you know, the successor to Bernie um, moving forward for the actual left flank of the party. If he doesn't, if he does what he did in the last race, which is back off of Medicare for all, then he's not the heir apparent. Now, AOC, she could be the heir apparent to Bernie Sanders. But again, I think she's probably one of the prime examples of she gets lost in the culture war far too often. And she would need to just go full bore on economics and health care and put the foot forward where everybody agrees with you. And so if you're fighting for the issues where everybody agrees with you, that's how you get into power. So, but those are the only two who are even remotely interesting here. And it looks like Cuomo or Harris is the front runner and Buttigieg is number three. That's basically a nightmare scenario. That's as bad as it gets. That's really bad. I don't know how else to say it. That's, that's, that's crazy. But here we are. So it's time to reevaluate how we approach this, lefties. You know, no, no more of this Alex Morse stuff where he was smeared. There were allegations of non-sexual assault that they were pretending was sexual assault or harassment or sexual inappropriateness or whatever you want to call it. No more of this nonsense. The left falling for smear campaigns. By the way, I did mess up in the previous segment. I said um, DSA had unendorsed him. They did not. There were, there were, uh, I got the information from Zed Jelani, and Zed Jelani tweeted that it was a particular chapter that wasn't affiliated with um, 
Morse, but the overall organization, like the national organization, did not unendorse. So credit to DSA on that front. But now, now everybody's realizing they were duped. So Sun, Sunshine Movement uh, came out and said, um, sun, why do I keep saying Sunshine? Sunrise came out and was like, you know what? Listen, man, our bad. This was a smear campaign, and now we're backing him even more. Jamal Bowman, who had walked back his endorsement, now came back out and said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm taking that back, and I'm going to fight twice as hard now for Alex Morse. So people are learning, but, like, you need to learn this lesson for the long run because any time a progressive gets a, any whiff of power, they're immediately going to pull out the cynical playbook, and whether it's the Republicans or the corporate Democrats, they will weaponize your values against you. And so if it's that easy, if it's that easy to divide and conquer the left that all you need is some vague accusation or some claim of victimhood and the left eats itself, of course they're going to weaponize it. Of course they're going to weaponize it. So you have to wise up. You have to wise up and you have to recognize what solidarity actually means. So... Hopefully they learn the lesson from the Alex Morse thing and we can adjust moving forward. But who knows? I feel like we're still very ripe to be, the, to be exploited and for divide and conquer to work on us. So we got to wise up. This poll should be a wake-up call to everybody. It's pathetic. This is what we have to look forward to in 2024? <laughs> if it is, I crave death. Okay, next. The Democrats are already doing what they do best, which is compromising on the compromise. Here's a story in The Hill on the Biden team's health care plans. This is what they say. A battle within the Democratic Party is looming on health care if presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden wins and the Senate flips. In the primary earlier this year, Biden's plan for a government-run public option for health insurance was seen as the moderate choice compared with Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. But once the arena shifts away from the campaign trail to Congress, where the proposal would have to pass via a narrow margin in the Senate, and despite fierce opposition from well-funded industry groups, Biden's plan would become a daunting challenge to enact. Surveying this landscape, some Democratic congressional aides and outside health care advisors who spoke on the condition of anonymity said they expected the party would start next year with a more modest package of fixes to Obamacare that did not include a public option in an effort to get some early points on the board. Kamala Harris the other day released something. She wants to improve Obamacare, get this, over a 10-year period. So we've gone from Medicare for all, single payer, let's catch up to the rest of the developed world, to actually, no, that's too ambitious, let's just do a public option to forget a public option, let's just vaguely improve Obamacare over a 10-year period.
there are two reasons the Democrats are doing this. Number one, they take money from Big Pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies. So they're corrupt, and they're doing the bidding of their donors in the industry. That's the first one. The second one is Democrats are scared of any word uttered by Republicans, and they preemptively fold, they preemptively cave in an attempt to appear to the media to, I'm more... I'm so reasonable, I'm so moderate, I'm above the fray. Yes, let's try this third way move, this triangulation, as it's called. Let's do the Bill Clinton strategy. This is what's called the new democratic strategy. And we say we're above it all, we're above, we're above partisanship. We'll be the reasonable ones who will now propose what was formerly just a right-wing Republican idea. This is pathetic. This is pathetic. You know how many, you know how many Republican votes there were for Obamacare? I hope you're sitting. There were zero. Not a single Republican supported Obamacare. So why this obsession with like, oh my God, if we do what they want, then maybe they'll support it. No, they won't because Obamacare is an individual mandate system. That came from a right-wing think tank called the Heritage Foundation. It used to be supported by Republicans in the 1990s, like Chuck Grassley and Newt Gingrich. And then Obama proposed it, and they backed off of it. They're like, no, 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 we don't want to have anything to do with that. So you're giving them exactly what they want, and they still back off of it, and you got zero votes, and you're still going out there compromising on the compromise to the compromise. Because you don't want it. Not only do they not want Medicare for all, they don't want a public option because they fear that if they do a public option, the public option will be so wildly successful that it will take out the for-profit health insurance companies in the long run because you'd probably get better care and it would cost less. So who wouldn't want to go into the public option? That's what they fear. Hey, if we do a public option, our donors in the industry are going to be pissed off because that's going to put them out of business. So they don't want Medicare for all. They don't even want a public option. And they want you to shut up, fall in line, and vote for them. We have a pandemic on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We've covered stories of bills for COVID-19 that cost over a million dollars. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in this country. We have over 30 million Americans who don't have health care. There were 7 to 9 million who lost their health insurance before COVID hit, but under the Trump administration. Now we have another 23 or so million who lost their health insurance because they had their insurance through their job and they lost their job because the economy is imploding. The Democratic Party is looking at a situation where tens of millions of Americans have no health insurance. And what's their answer? Incremental changes over a 10-year period to maybe, maybe not cover some of you. This is beyond pathetic. This is beyond pathetic. This is beyond weak. This is beyond corrupt. This is disgusting. They don't even know how to pretend to want to fight for you. And every single person who tries to shame you because you don't want to immediately pledge your vote to Joe Biden, fuck them. Fuck them. They're supposed to come to you. You're the voter. They serve you. 
you don't feel like they're serving you well, right, when your family members don't have health care or you just got a medical bill for $67,000. All of the anger should be directed at them, not voter-shaming people. If you have standards and you apply them, that's called being an adult who has thought things through. But they smear that. Oh, my, it's a litmus test. Gross. What are you, what are you, purist? Yes, I'd like to not die from not having health care. Yes. Is that too pure of me? I'd like to not go bankrupt from a medical bill. Is that too pure of me? I'd like for all Americans to have health care in a pandemic. Somehow, we have all the money in the world to increase Donald Trump's bloated military budget every single year. We have enough money to add $2 trillion to the deficit with another tax cut for the rich. But we can't give people health care in a pandemic. We can't do what the rest of the developed world has managed to do and has been doing for a very long time, mind you. We can't do it. Even though Medicare for All saves $5 trillion over a decade, we can't do it. We can't do it. It's not that you can't do it. It's that you don't want to do it. Because really, the people who run the system are the corporate donors. It is big pharma. It is the for-profit health insurance companies. It is the military-industrial complex. It is Wall Street. They run the system. They own the politicians. And the Democrats are supported to be the half-measure party. Hey, 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 you want some tweaks around the edges that might help you a little bit but also increase profits for health insurers? Fine. We'll do some tweaks around the edges. Don't you dare ask for universal social democratic policies because we will laugh you out of the room and we will treat you like you're Fidel Castro. They try to make you feel crazy and they try to make you feel stupid for saying, hey, can we please just catch up to the rest of the developed world? Can we please just do that? They try to make you feel ashamed for wanting that. And then they spit in your eye and slap you in the face with stories like this. We haven't even begun the health care fight yet in the middle of a pandemic. And what are the Democrats saying? Well, I know that the party wants over 80% of Democratic voters want Medicare for all. Sorry, not going to do it. Screw you to my own base. Okay, public option is one step removed from that. We're not going to do that either. And they literally frame it like, because what about the Republicans? There's going to be a long fight over this. They didn't even vote for Obamacare, which was a right-wing idea. They're not going to vote for anything you put forward. So you might as well be for the solution. You might as well be for the correct thing. Why is it totally out of bounds for Democrats to think, hey, what if we fought relentlessly for the correct position? Why is that totally out of bounds? Why is that not even considered in the conversation? Because it's not. It's not considered. Oh, okay. We only have X amount of votes for Medicare for all, and we need X amount more. How about we run aggressive campaigns? How about we call out the people who aren't for Medicare for all? How about we shame them in their own district to their own voters? How about we embarrass them nationally and put pressure on them? Fighting is out of bounds for Democrats. They're like, no, I, that's ridiculous. Why would I actually take a position, believe in it, 
have a conviction and fight for it. And here's the thing, guys, because you might say it doesn't matter how hard they fight, it won't work. Yes, but then you have this thing called an election. And if you sufficiently crush your opponents with good arguments that appeal to the people, well, then they lose, and then you get more Democrats elected, and then eventually you can pass a bold agenda. Now, I know it's a long-term project, but that's life, and that's politics. Rome wasn't built in a day, so you have to get to work on it right now. But they don't do it because they're corrupt and they're weak, and they don't want what you and I want. But this is why I've told everybody there is a democratic civil war. It is the left versus the corporatists. Acknowledge there's a civil war and fight for your damn side, as opposed to what most of the elected lefties do, including Bernie, which is like pretend like there's no civil war. Hey, maybe if I'm nice enough to them, they'll be nice to me back. They're never going to support Medicare for all. You have to force them to. You have to shame them and embarrass them and shine a light on it and call them out and be aggressive and be relentless. We didn't vote you into Washington, D.C. to make friends. You're there to fight for the American people. Now, do you know how to do that at all? Or are you going to tuck your tail in between your legs and go cry? The answer is they're going to tuck their tail in between their legs and go cry. They're not going to fight. It's a long-term project, but you have to start now. If you got zero Republican votes for Obamacare, okay, then get a supermajority, get zero Republican votes again, and get Medicare for all. Because I got news for you, even with the Republicans not voting for it, 51% of their base actually wants it. The actual people want it. The actual people need it. So there are corrupt politicians in your way. Bulldoze them. Bulldoze them. As hard as you possibly can. At the very least, if you go down, you go down swinging. But we're not even swinging. We're laying in a chalk outline of ourselves. Because I see no real leadership. The Bernie Sanders of old is long gone. It was soon, as soon as he voted for the CARES Act, it was like, oh, okay. What happened to this guy? And where are the other ones taking a stand? I do have to give credit to the Bernie delegates who refused to vote for the DNC platform because they said, it doesn't have Medicare for all, I can't vote for this. And there are a bunch of them. There are a bunch of them who were like, no, we're not going to, no. This is, over 80% of our party wants it, and you say no. 60% of the American people want it, you say no. No way. We're against it. And legal marijuana, too. They were like, this is ridiculous. So credit to them. But these are fighters like Nina Turner, who's actually not in Congress, not in the Senate. She should be. Not in there. So there are no real leaders on the national scene who know how to take the fight to them like I'm advocating for right now. And this is why you get these articles which repeatedly slap the left in the face. Let's compromise on top of the compromise on top of the compromise. And then expect to get pats on the back and expect the left to run to the polls to vote for you with a smile on their faces. When you're saying, I'm not going to give you Dickie McGee's axe. We got to wise up. We got to wake up. Again, I'm going to put it like this. When it comes to actual policy, I'm the purest of the purest. I do have a litmus test. And I will fight for these things. I have, I have standards. You want to shame me for having standards? By all means. I have no purity test at all when it comes to personal stuff. And unfortunately, in today's Democratic Party, they have the inverse of everything I just described. They do have purity tests, but only for personal lives and things of that nature. 
and offensive comments and claims of victimhood. Purity on that front, no purity at all on policy. You can be as corrupt as you want, as big of a sellout as you want, as big of a neoliberal corporatist as you want. We welcome you with open arms. And that's the problem in this country. That's exactly what I described right there. That's the problem in this country. That's the problem with the Democrats. This is beyond pathetic. And it means we just need to get more involved. All of us need to get more involved. A bunch of us got to run because we can't let this keep happening. We can't afford this. All right, next. Edward Snowden was trending on Twitter the other day because Trump was asked a question about him. Here's what he said. situation, but I'm going to start looking at it. There are many, many people. It seems to be a split decision. There are many people think that uh, he should be somehow treated differently, and other people think he did very bad things, and I'm going to take a very good look at it, okay? I mean, I, I've, I've seen people that are very conservative and very liberal, and they agree on the same issue. They agree both ways. Uh, I'm going to take a look at that very strongly, Edward Snowden. Yeah, please. So this became a big story, and I do have to say I'm a little surprised by how big of a story this was, because to me that just sounded like typical Trump BSing. He's asked about Edward Snowden. He's like, you know, I've heard all types of things about Edward Snowden. There's some people who say that he's a good man and he's done some good things. He's getting a raw deal. And there are other people who say maybe not so much and he's done some bad things. So, you know, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at it very strongly. Very strongly. To me, that just sounds like standard Trump, like, you know, there's fine people on both sides. It's one of those types of things. It's just he's kind of riffing and just rolling with it. And so he makes people think, like, oh, there's hope, maybe. But I really don't think he's going to pardon him. I hope he does. I hope he does. But I really don't think he's going to. Um, And then what you had is a bunch of Democrats now – Again, outflanking Trump on his right. And like Susan Rice was like, I can't even deal with this. This is what the Republicans have become. If Trump were to pardon Snowden, it would be the best thing he's done by far. By far. Because Edward Snowden is a whistleblower and a hero. Edward Snowden showed the American people that the security state was illegally and unconstitutionally spying on all of us and collecting all of our metadata against the Fourth Amendment. The government is violating your Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. He showed that. He's a hero. And now to try to own Trump, Susan Rice and other Democrats are going to his right and saying, no, I will be more authoritarian than Donald Trump. I won't even consider a a pardon for Edward Snowden. That's so pathetic. That's not something to be proud of, that you won't consider a pardon for Edward Snowden. And of course they have these BS ideas that he's a Russian puppet or something or a spy or whatever. No, he's an American with a conscience who realized that his fellow Americans were having their constitutional rights violated, and so he blew the whistle. 
and he was correct to. And by the way, his life was ruined as a result of that. So that's a true hero. But Democrats are trying to pivot to his right. But listen, at the end of the day, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be no pardon. I think. I hope I'm wrong. I hope Trump does pardon him. I don't see it. Because that just sounded like typical Trump tap dancing to me. And also, well, I just realized I have the wrong graphic over my shoulder. So I'm going to change that as I talk to you right now in the middle of the segment because I'm just so, so, so in order and, and structured here. Um, but Trump also had previously said that Snowden should be executed. He had made that argument previously. He said that Edward Snowden should be executed for what he did. So what is this? Listen, Trump in many ways is exactly like Hillary Clinton is, where he's been on both sides of virtually every issue. And this is just another example of it. He should be executed, but oh, maybe he got a raw deal. Maybe I'll pardon him. <laughs> like what? There were times Trump, you know, before he was president, before he was a candidate, he mouthed support for Medicare for all. In fact, once in a 60 Minutes interview, he's like, we're going to give health care to everybody. And the host was like, who's going to take care of that? And he's like, the government will. So he said that. And he's also, he just recently attacked Kamala Harris when he wrongly said that she's for Medicare for all. She's for socialized medicine. It'll kick 180 million people off their health care. So this is a guy who he's got no core. He's got no ideology. He doesn't. He just doesn't. And so he'll be on both sides of virtually every issue. And then what he wants you to do is to overlook the thing that he said that you disagree with and pretend like he definitely agrees with you. In, in many ways, he's really a very talented con artist, I think, Trump is. Um, so, but this was trending and people really thought like, oh, maybe he's going to pardon him. I doubt it, guys. If you watch that clip again, he's just doing his typical Trump battling. He clearly hasn't thought about the issue. And pe- by the way, he finds out Snowden said one negative thing about him, and I'm sure Snowden did. Then uh, he's going to be like, no, bad guy. This is not a good guy, people. Because you know how petty and thin-skinned Trump is. But I hope he does pardon him. But I really don't think he will. All right, now let's talk about the reality of who really is running the Democratic Party. If the reality of who really runs the Democratic Party wasn't clear to you yet, let me remind you. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, given only 60 seconds to speak at Democratic Convention, John Kasich, a Republican, and Michael Bloomberg, a billionaire, will get more time than the left-wing congresswoman. They'll get more time than the entire squad. John Kasich and Michael Bloomberg. By the way, a poll came out asking Democrats who they, who they would prefer to see. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got 63% prefer to see her speak. Um, Kasich was well below 50%, I think it was. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez even beat out Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton had like 56%, something like that, maybe 53, 56%. So the voters want her to speak. Party leadership, by the way, it keeps getting worse and worse. First we learned, oh, it's only 60 seconds. Then we learned it had to be pre-recorded also. Presumably, you know, they have to make sure she's not going to step too out of bounds in her speech. 
listen, this needs to be a lesson to people on the left. They don't like you. They don't agree with you. They might pat you on the head a couple times and say, welcome to the club. You ain't in the club. And the more you're sycophantic to them, the more you bend the knee to them, the more you say, like, oh, Nancy Pelosi's the mama bear, or something to that effect, which is what AOC did, the, li- the less they respect you, and the more they know they got you. So, you know, I've said this from the beginning, and I'll continue to say it. You're not there to make friends. In fact, if anything, you should be there to make enemies, not just in the Republican Party, in the Democratic Party also. Because how does an outsider candidate and politician, where do they derive their power from? The answer is very simple, the people. If you are an outsider politician and you're a populist, the people are on your side. So how do you use your power and leverage your power? You use your people. So in other words, the tools in your toolbox are public pressure, campaigns to shame politicians who are not on the correct side of Medicare for all, or free college, or a living wage, or a Green New Deal. That's where you get your power from. But unfortunately, what we see with, and it's not just her, but it's almost every left-wing politician, is that they immediately neuter themselves when they get into power. They castrate themselves. Like, oh, okay, I will try to out-maneuver politically the likes of Nancy Pelosi or other Democratic leaders. And I'll try to play this insider game better than them. You're never going to be the master insiders at the insider game. That's all they know. That's all they have. So that dirty kind of Washington politics, the left is never going to win playing those games. The left needs to use the power of the people, needs to use the outsider pressure to shine a light on what's actually going on to then force politicians to either do our bidding or lose and be replaced by somebody who will do our bidding. That's where we get all of our power from. And unfortunately, I've seen it time and time again. It's virtually every left-wing politician. They get in power. And then they actually distance themselves from using the people, using that pressure, using that power, and are willing to go along to get along to some extent, to one extent or another. We're never, going to get, we're never going to win on our policies by using that approach. The only way we have any prayer of winning is to use the people. So this is just another reminder here. They would rather pander to and cater to John Kasich, Planned Parenthood cutting deficit hawk John Kasich, or Michael Bloomberg, stop and frisk billionaire, the guy who blocked a minimum wage increase as mayor of New York City. They'd rather put those people front and center than somebody who actually represents some left-wing ideas. Do you get it yet? Do people understand yet? You know, I take a lot of crap because I've told people basically the only way we have any chance of winning power is to use one of the two dominant political parties. Like, I get shit because I say, like, listen, as much as I love people trying to start a third party, the system is just totally biased against a third party. You're making your life harder. You will not get power 
if you try to go a third-party route. You're just not going to get power. So I take shit for that. But what you need to understand is the nuance and the exact strategy of doing a takeover of the party. I've been clear from day one. This is a hostile takeover. I'm not talking about getting in there and then we get watered down and beaten back by the system. And we bend the knee a little and then a little bit more. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we get in there and we let everybody know. I'm not here to make friends. I hate all the Republican leadership. I also hate the Democratic leadership. And they want, oh, they want to snub me by not giving me a committee assignment? Okay, then I'll call that out too. And I'll fire up my people who's, you know, I rode in here on a wave of their support. I'm going to keep them fired up. I'm going to keep them on my side. I'm going to keep them fighting for the right things. I will leverage that pressure. So if they try to screw me because I simply disagree with them, okay, then the world's going to know about it. And guess who's going to come out of that fight on top politically? I am. Yeah, oh, I might be a freshman congressman. Who cares? Who cares? Know your place. No, the way this system works is I represent the people. I don't give a shit about your hierarchy from within the kingdom, within the castle. This ain't a meritocracy. They rose to the top by being the most corrupt. You think I respect that? I don't respect that. So we need to win with a hostile takeover. You take over one of the two major parties because we have a two-party system and it's biased against the third parties. You could try the third party thing. It's not going to work. If anything's going to work, it's taking over one of the two major parties, for sure. Now, that's hard, too, but it does have an actual prayer of working. But the way you do it is standing up to them, calling them out, not taking the crumbs that they give you. Here, I'll give you, you want to speak? <laughs> That's cute. I'll give you 60 seconds, and it's pre-recorded. That's how much they value you. You know what they, and I, I'll tell Andrew Yang, too, because they didn't give him any speaking slot. They want your popularity without your ideas. You want me to say that again for you? They want your popularity without your ideas. They're playing you, and they're not even really hiding it that much now, are they? Dance with who brung you. You know who brought all the outsider candidates into Washington, D.C.? The people in grassroots-funded campaigns. Let them know that they are your boss. The people are your boss. Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Democratic leadership, they can kick rocks. and care about what they want me to do, what they want me to say, how they want me to vote. I don't answer to them. I answer to the people. And it would be nice if the left actually really acknowledged the source of their power and leveraged it. Because the few times that that did happen early on, the media turned on AOC and backed Pelosi. And then she backed off a little bit because she also wants the media to not hate her. But again, I would argue you have to embrace that in order to get any victories. You have to embrace the smears from the media and wear it as a badge of honor. If Democratic leadership smears you, if the media smears you, great, great. That means they're threatened by you, which means you're closer to Medicare for all and all the policies that we want than you think you are. But if you start appeasing them, there is no end to that appeasement. 
and will never win on policy. So just my two cents. But if I was AOC, I would have told him, hey, take your 60 seconds and shove it up your ass. How about that? Okay, next. So I have a new favorite Twitter account it's called accidentally left wing <laughs> and they tweet stuff that people say uh, where they don't realize that they're like advocating for a left wing position. So um, here's the one the other day that really, really made me feel some emotions. So you see the banner, it says Trump 2020 on top there. It's got a pickup truck as his, his picture. And he says the following, just got this bill from a major hospital in the East Valley. It was for a two-hour ER visit. I was allergic to something, and they had to give me fluids and Benadryl. The question I have, are these charges legit? They seem extremely high. For example, one bag of IV fluid, Celine, was almost $1,500. Am I wrong, or is this awfully high? And then you can see it's, how much is the bill? $4,960 for a visit to the ER. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. I don't understand. This is really expensive. Are they price gouging me? Yes, they are. Now, why don't you go back to advocating for a private for-profit health insurance system and advocating against Medicare for All, where under the for-profit health insurance system, you will continue to be ripped off. Now, listen, he has the Trump 2020 banner. He's obviously a supporter of Trump. Does he know the specifics of Trump's health care policy? Probably not, but he should, especially if he's advocating for this guy as hard as he clearly is. Listen, under Trump, before COVID, seven to nine million people lost their health insurance. During and after COVID, now the numbers vary on this one, there was one report, New York Times said 5.8 million people lost their employee, employer-sponsored health insurance. I read one from the Kaiser Foundation, and they specifically look at healthcare stuff. They said 23 million Americans lost their, um, their employer health insurance coverage. So we're talking about like, what, 30 million or so people lost their health insurance under Trump? He signed a bunch of executive orders that stab Obamacare in the back, which make it so fewer people have health care. Of course, prices are going to skyrocket. Of course, they're going to go up. Our system, even prior to Obamacare, I mean, just total mess. Price gouging left and right. That's the whole point of the system. The whole point of a for-profit health insurance system is that you have a middleman who gets in between you and your doctor, and they take a cut. That's why I call it a mafia. You have a mafia middleman in between you and your doctor. And I haven't even gotten into the hospital's price gouging also. We covered a story years ago on Secular Talk where 
they would, if you ask for a line-by-line bill, they'll give it to you, and you'll see how weaselly they are and how slimy they are. One of the things they do is they overcharge for basic things. There was um, somebody was used a box of tissues, and they build it as a like a cough suppressant aid, and they charge like a thousand dollars for it. It was a box of tissues. It's a box of tissues. So everybody's price gouging. The middleman health insurance company is taking their cut. The hospital's price gouging and taking their cut. You're getting ripped off left and right. It's the wild, wild west out here. And it looks like it was a little bit of a light bulb moment. Oh, my God. What's going on? This is way more than I thought it would be in our system. What happened? I thought it was the best health care system in the world. Yes! This is what you hear from conservatives all the time. I wonder what this guy thought of one Bernard Sanders. I'd love to know what this person thought of Bernard Sanders. But listen, I'm not, I genuinely take no joy in these kinds of stories. Like, I'm not doing this to dance on this poor guy's freaking medical bill. Like, his medical bill should be zero dollars and zero cents. It should have came out of his taxes. It should have come right out of his taxes. Like every other developed country, instead of all your money going to war and Wall Street bailouts, it should be going to health care. He shouldn't have to pay a single penny for what he got there. So I take no joy in this. But I really just want people to wake up, man. Wake up. Realize how much you're getting screwed. People in this country have been convinced that somehow you're the crazy person or you're the sucker if you say, hey, everybody should have health care. Somehow that's the thing that people like look down, like many people look down on like ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? Every other developed country does it. Why is that ridiculous? nothing ridiculous about it at all. That's the norm in the developed world. But at least, to be fair, it's like over 60% of the American public wants Medicare for all now. So most people are actually with us. But I just want people to also have that translate into their voting preferences and not be so easily duped by fake outsiders like Trump. He's not doing anything. He's making it worse. He's making our health care system worse. He's not going to help you with that bill. you kidding me? Listen, if I agree or disagree with somebody, it's irrelevant. You have a right to health care in a developed country. We have the means. You have a right to it. The only reason why we don't have universal health care is the corruption. It's because that mafia middleman controls the system, just like Wall Street controls the system, just like the military-industrial complex controls the system. So everybody should be covered. Full stop. And it doesn't matter how much I like you, dislike you, what your politics are, what my politics are. I mean, this guy, everybody deserves health care. And I seriously take no pleasure in in showing you this story. I just want to show you how the propaganda in so many ways has worked and people advocate against their own best interests. Okay. Next. The most annoying man in media is back for us with another conventional wisdom spewing hot take. So here's Chris Saliza of CNN. 
And he's going to talk about why Biden picking Kamala was actually brilliant. Joe Biden thinks he is right on track to win the White House on November 3rd. That's the unmistakable message he sent in picking California Senator Kamala Harris as his vice presidential nominee. Harris, who ran unsuccessfully for the Democratic presidential nomination earlier this year, had been the frontrunner since the start to be Biden's pick because, well, she simply made the most sense. Consider the following. She's been vetted on the national stage due to her own 2020 bid. She has experience in government as both the Attorney General of California and as a U.S. Senator since 2017. At 55 years old, Harris represents a younger generation of Democratic leaders, something that Biden, who will be 78 by Inauguration Day 2021, said was a major factor in his choice. Harris would be is a historic pick as the first black and South Asian American woman to appear in a major party's national ticket. Harris is from California, a massive treasure trove of both Democratic votes and Democratic donors. And last but not least, Harris emerged as an outspoken voice on race and the need for police reform following the killing of George Floyd in May and the subsequent protests it sparked around the country. When you look at all that, there's just no one else on Biden's VP shortlist that checked so many boxes. What's truly telling to me is that Biden and his campaign team did not feel the need to reach for a less predictable pick. They knew that while picking Harris would draw considerable attention, it would also be the thing most people expected them to do. And despite the historic nature of putting Harris on the ticket, Biden and his advisors knew that selecting Harris might be described by some as, well, a little bit unsurprising. But one man's unsurprising, he's another man's safe. And that's exactly what Harris is. And what Biden believes he needs. See, if you were Joe Biden, making your third run for president, and ahead in virtually every swing state and nationally over President Donald Trump, every day between now and Election Day, you want to do nothing that threatens to change the underlying dynamics of race. And those underlying dynamics are that this election is a referendum on Trump's first term, and more specifically, the deeply haphazard and erratic way in which he has handled the coronavirus pandemic in the country. Under that theory of the case, Biden needs to spend most of his time convincing voters that Trump deserves to be fired, and a relatively small amount of time making sure they believe he could do the job in the incumbent's place. What all that means is that Biden wants the race to be about him as little as humanly possible. He does not want to turn this into 2016 all over again, in which Hillary Clinton was forced by Trump to play defense over her time and email she sent at the State Department. He doesn't want the race to turn into a war of words or a battle to see who can sink lower in terms of personal attacks. Breaking news, it's Trump. And so, in making the most important decision of his campaign and of his political life, Biden abided by that approach. He wanted, above all, to do no harm. This guy is such a joke. He just, whatever the conventional wisdom of the Democratic elites is, he's just like, oh, I will just regurgitate exactly what it is that they believe and act like it is supremely rational. You really think that's your job, Chris, as somebody in the media, somebody who works for CNN? Let me tell you exactly what it is 
that these elites believe in and, and put a happy face on it and put a veneer of respectability and seriousness and rationality over it. Is that your job? You know, I think maybe somebody in CNN should do a segment like I did where I went through her entire record. I did this when she launched. I did this in um, the segment where we discussed when she was actually picked. Like, hey, here's what she's actually for. Here's what she's actually done. Here's where she is ideologically. He doesn't, he doesn't really get into that now, does he? What does he do? Let's run through it. Let's, from the top. I love how he, he cites as a reason why she was picked, as if this makes sense. He goes, well, she's been vetted. She's, she's been vetted. She ran for president. And she got, like, 3%. Did she win any delegates? Any. So she came in with all the media hype in the world, acting like she's a super serious candidate who's going to obviously do well and probably we don't even need the election. She's probably going to be the one who wins. She comes in with every advantage in the world, and then she craters. By the way, you want to know why she did? Because she started out pretending, like, oh, no, totally, I represent more of the left flank of the party, like Bernie. I'm like, Bernie, I signed on to his Medicare for all. I'm totally like him, except I'm younger and I'm a black woman. So, obviously, if you want the left-wing policies, you might as well take it with the extra benefits of checking the identity boxes. And then what happens? Second, there was even a minimal amount of pressure from the media and other Democratic candidates. She folded and ran away from every single left-wing idea. And then her campaign became what? It became about Donald Trump does a lot of mean tweets, and Donald Trump says things that violate the terms of service of Twitter, so I think he should be banned. That's what her... That's what her campaign became. So, shocker, she went from a top-tier candidate, as she famously told us, to being a total non-issue even before Iowa. And now Chris Saliza goes out there and says, well, she's been vetted because she ran for president, and she was wildly unpopular. So how is that an argument in favor of her? These people are unbelievable. Um, he says, oh, she has experience. She has experience as an attorney general trying to lock up parents for truancy if their kids miss school, she has a record of locking people up for nonviolent drug offenses. She has a record of hiding evidence to keep somebody locked up when it was proven that he was actually innocent. She has a record of uh, fighting to keep people locked up in order to continue what is effectively slave labor in California, where they take prisoners and make them fight fires for like a dollar an hour. She has a, a record of letting Wall Street criminals like Steve Mnuchin go when he was committing fraud and foreclosing on people early when he was the head of One West Bank in California, and her own office said, you better prosecute him. And she said, I don't think so. And it turns out, of course, she's taken money from him for her campaigns. That's what she has a record of doing. Do you want to bring up any of that, Chris? Any of that? Any of the actual policies? No, of course not. Of course not. Why would he do such a thing? Policy. I just do banal, stale Democratic Party talking points and act like they're su supremely rational. He argues one of the reasons he gives for why she's a good pick is, oh, she's young. Okay, Chris, again, try to stick with me here, buddy. Policy has to come first. Listen, if you want to care about all that other stuff, that's fine. You know, different people care different degrees about, you know, um, race, gender, age, so on and so forth. I'm not knocking you if you, do, if you factor that in somewhere on the list, okay? But if you put it above policy, you're a rube, and you've been duped, and you're a sucker, and you're an identitarian who 
you could have your own values weaponized against you in the most cynical of ways. And that's what's happening. That's exactly what he's saying. She's young. I don't care that she's young. If she was locking up young people for marijuana and laughing at the idea of legal marijuana as early as, as late as uh, like 2014. God, terrible. Then he goes on to say, well, she's black and she's South Asian. So again, identity box, check. Somehow this is overriding policy. She's from California. He cites the fact that she's from California as a positive. So a state that Biden is guaranteed to win in a landslide, somehow, somehow, the a senator from that state being on the ticket is a good thing? No. The only logic that would make sense is if you had somebody from a swing state that's up in the air. Because then that might actually put Biden over the edge in said swing state. He's not even trying, man. Chris is not even trying. And then he dares to say, well, she came out for police reform after George Floyd was killed. There's not even a hint of like, hey, man, listen, her record before, she was a hardcore law and order, almost right winger on criminal justice issues. But now she has had a change of heart. There's not even an acknowledgement that beforehand she was actually like, you know, crime bill, law and order Biden. There's no acknowledgement. It's just, oh, yeah, she totally, and, and there's no, you, you're not allowed to question the, the sincerity of this move on her part. You're not allowed to be like, hmm, that seems a little opportunistic, and then maybe she's just going with the winds of the party to try to get elected, and maybe her core is not actually in alignment with what she's proclaiming at this moment. Not even allowed to say that. Um, and then, and, and the, these are the most important points, okay? He makes the argument she's safe. Chris, you, you can't just say that and assert it as if it's true and that's the end of the conversation. You'd have to actually make an argument to come to the conclusion that she's safe, and he doesn't make that argument. He just asserts she's safe. So you know what he's doing? Again, this is conventional wisdom bubble spewing. It's just, I was told she's safe. Democratic elites think she's safe. People in the media say she's safe. So she's safe. I'm going to say she's safe. You know who else they said was safe? Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine in the membrane. Kill me. Tim Kaine, the most vanilla, boring, corporate Democrat white dude. They thought that was a genius pick in 2016. Why? Because he's safe. He's the one that everybody expects us to pick. Hillary's a woman. You don't want to scare people with, like, two women or anything crazy like that. You don't want to, you don't want to alienate the moderates and the Republicans who might vote for you by picking a lefty. You can't do that. So let's go with the safe option of Tim Kaine, who nobody likes. And that's exactly what this Kamala thing is. Let's go with Kamala Harris, who just got her clock cleaned in the race. I'm not sure she won a single delegate. Let's go with Kamala Harris, who the right despises and the left despises. Because she's safe. She's safe only in your stupid world of democratic elite theory, where empirical reality does not penetrate that bubble. And then finally, he makes the argument, like, what Biden wants to do is not really take any risks from here on out and just keep focusing on how Trump is bad. That's literally exactly what Hillary Clinton did. He acts like Hillary didn't do that, and she had to go on the defense for all these different things. No, Hillary's, the, the centerpiece of her campaign was Trump bad, and that wasn't enough. And so now the centerpiece of Biden's campaign is Trump bad, and I have a safe VP pick. See, this is why this is, this is getting crazy now. We just got a poll yesterday from CNN. 
Biden has a four-point national lead. The margin of error, plus or minus four points. The previous poll from CNN, Biden had a 14-point lead. Now, you could say, hey, maybe this is just an outlier. Could be. Could be. Or maybe not. Maybe the outlier was the plus 14 one. Race is tightening, and I don't like the steps he's taking. Not at all. Not even a little bit. And now I guarantee you this. Since that poll came out and it looked like Trump surged 10 points in a month, Biden's going to start making more public appearances. And that's literally the last thing he should do. He should hide in the basement even more. Even more. Democrats know how to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And they might be on a path to do it again. I mean, we'll see. It's really too early to tell. I don't have a crystal ball here. (laughs) I don't. If you want to see crystal ball, go to Rising. (laughs) I don't have a crystal ball here. But it's time to get nervous. I'm just a wee bit nervous, if you can't tell. All right, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we got Bernie Sanders was asked about Wall Street's love of Kamala Harris. We're going to see how he handled that and much, much more.
I am back, bitch. Alright. We shall continue. We got Bernard Sanders. Is in the news today. We will talk about him. Bernie Sanders was asked about Wall Street's love of Kamala Harris. Let's see how he handled it. If Wall Street breathes a sigh of relief with Kamala Harris being named to the ticket, what what does Bernie Sanders do? Well, Bernie Sanders does everything that he can to defeat Donald Trump with undermining American democracy. Uh, Donald Trump was lying to the American people repeatedly on every issue. Donald Trump was not supportive of continuing and maintaining those $600 supplementary uh, checks that workers desperately need or the $1,200 checks that many working families need. Donald Trump wants to throw 32 million people off the health insurance that they have. Donald Trump does not even recognize science in terms of the pandemic or in climate change. So what Bernie Sanders is going to do is do everything that I can to defeat Donald Trump, to elect Joe Biden, and after the Democrats have control of the Senate and the House, and Joe is the president, we're going to do all that we can to mobilize people for a progressive agenda. But this is not a complicated issue. Donald Trump must be defeated. Biden must be elected. And after that election, we're going to do all that we can for a progressive fight for a progressive agenda. So I tweeted about this yesterday, and um, the results were, were mixed in terms of some people agree with me, some people disagree with me. But, yeah, I don't love that answer. First of all, it's called what he just did is called a red herring, where he's asked one thing and he just talks about something kind of unrelated to the direct question. I mean, you're asked about Wall Street breathing a sigh of relief because of Kamala Harris, and Bernie goes right to Trump bad. Now, does that mean he can't make a Trump bad argument? No, of course he can. And you can make a Trump bad argument that's relevant to the question that was asked, but he didn't really answer it that way. So, listen, in my opinion, he should you got to denounce it up front. you got to denounce, you know, the fact that Kamala Harris is a favorite of Wall Street up front. Denounce it. Hey, I'm against Wall Street. I'm against their money corrupting the system. Um, it's a bad sign that Wall Street is comfortable with Kamala Harris. And every Democratic candidate, whether it's for Congress, whether it's for the Senate, whether it's for the presidency, they should reject corporate PAC money and Wall Street money. Start with that. But no, it was skip that part, no denouncing, and go right to Trump bad. And then, by the way, we're at the point now in the election where if Bernie were to do the denounce up front, a lot of people would accuse him of helping Trump. Even if he immediately followed it up with, but Trump is worse, a lot of people would still say, no, 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 that's not good enough. You have to actively downplay, deny, disregard, override, ignore the fact that a Democrat does bad stuff. And I simply, 
me personally, I don't agree with that. If, if you have to hide the truth because you think the ends justify the means, you have no real principles. You always have to put the truth first, and then you could draw whatever conclusion you want and make whatever argument you want, but the truth has to come first. And the truth is, yes, Wall Street is very happy with Kamala Harris because she's very likely to do their bidding. That's the truth. Now, the other issue I have with this is um, he makes the point, as he's done before, hey, listen, day one, when Biden's elected, we're going to fight him as hard as we possibly can. I think this is incredibly naive. It's incredibly naive. Guys, I I hate to break it to you. Biden is going to govern the same way he has his entire adult life as a neoliberal corporatist. That's how Biden is going to govern. Now, you need to acknowledge that, and then you can maybe make an argument that you prefer neoliberal corporatism to Trump's right-wing authoritarian (laughs) corporate neoconservatism. Like, accept the facts as they are, and then make your mind up. I don't like this thing now where progressives are basically lying to themselves and everybody else when they say, like, oh, we'll elect Biden, and then on day one, we're going to mobilize and, like, push him left. Because he actually, and this is Bernie's biggest problem, he actually flipped it. He has no idea how power works. Because when Bernie had power was when he had leverage. When Bernie had leverage was when he was still in the race. Now, yes, it was overwhelmingly likely at a certain point that Biden's going to win. It's just a matter of time. Do you think Joe Biden and his team, do you think they would have wanted to run against Trump when there's an opponent who represents 40% of the Democratic base who's not going along with him for the ride? No. Bernie did have leverage. Bernie could have gotten quite a few things extracted out of Biden and his team, but he didn't. What did he do? He basically bent the knee for nothing ironclad, nothing specific. It was all like, okay, let's take our points of agreement that we nominally already have and highlight them in a thing where I endorse you. Listen, I said this early on, and, you know, I wish this was something that was a little more widespread and, you know, a bunch of people picked up on it because I think the idea was basically, it was everything for the left. But if I was Bernie Sanders, if I was in his shoes, um, you know, maybe when he decided to step down, instead of just stepping down, you have a meeting with Biden and you say, listen, man, um, there's some things you're going to have to do if you want me to campaign for you, if you want me to support you vociferously moving forward. Um, Here's a list of 10 executive orders. I want you to commit to doing these within the first 100 days. If you do, I'll do everything I can to get you elected and I will do my best to make sure that my base, 40% of the party, comes along. If you don't sign on to this list, I don't know, I don't know what you want me to tell you. I'm not going to campaign for you. Now, am I going to come out? Am I going to endorse nobody? Am I going to endorse Trump? Of course not. Am I going to, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I'm just going to sit out the election. I'm just not going to try to get you elected. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. That's what I'm going to do. And people can cry. People can bitch. People can moan. People can tell me I'm a terrible person and I like Trump and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. I care about the issues. I care about these things getting implemented. Now, do I think that there's any chance Biden would have said yes to, like, Medicare for all being on the list? Of course not. And so I wouldn't have put Medicare for all on the list. 
But what I would have done is put 10 executive orders that it's conceivable he would agree to that are amazing left-wing ideas that are super important. And instead of doing that, Bernie basically just bent the knee and didn't get much out of him. So this is my problem with what Bernie's doing here. He's lying to himself, and he's lying to the progressive base when he says, like, oh, after Biden gets elected, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to push him left or whatever. He ain't pushing him anywhere. He's going to be a neoliberal corporatist. That's who he is. You can make an argument that that's better than what Trump is, but make that argument. You can't say, oh, we'll elect him, and then we'll try to push him left. He's not going left. He's not going left. Get through that. He's not going left. The only opportunity you actually had to push him left was when you had leverage, when you had power, when you hadn't fallen in line yet. What incentive is there for him to do anything for you after you already bend the knee? You're already there. You're already locked up. By the way, what would have happened in a situation where Bernie takes 10 bomb executive orders and and says, listen, I need you to do these for me to support you? My guess is, and this is, I admit up front this is all speculation, because you never know. We don't live in this alternate timeline. But my guess is Biden would have came back and he would have said, listen, man, we're going to cut a deal. We're going to make it work, but I can't do these 10 executive orders. I can only do five of them. Or maybe maybe I can only do three of them. And here are the three I'm going to do. And then Bernie comes out and he holds up a piece of paper and he says, listen, we tried our best in this election. We didn't end up winning. But I want everybody to know the left will be heard. Our voices will be heard. And Joe Biden just promised he will sign these three executive orders within the first 100 days. Very important things to the left, right? And he could have held that piece of paper up and said, all of my supporters, you vote for Joe or you're leaving these things on the table. Is that what you want to do? You want to leave these things on the table? Then he would have had an argument. And he would have said, listen, I had leverage. I used it. I got something out of it. Instead, now there's no, there's nothing. It's, we got nothing, but vote for him. And then I'm also going to act like we'll push him left after he's elected. No, the opportunity to push him left was when you had leverage, when you were still in the race, when you could have actually gotten extractions. Now you can't get extractions. It's just, it's embarrassing because either... He has no idea how power works, or he does, and he didn't care that much, and he would just still prefer Biden, even if Biden does no progressive things. I, I like to think the better interpretation, the better scenario is he just doesn't understand how power works. But listen, guys, I don't, know, I don't know how else to say it. Everybody knows this. I love Bernie. I, I was his biggest supporter, you know. Uh, we were all on cloud nine after he won the Nevada caucus, and it looked like he was just going to curb stomp his way to victory. But things went wrong. Things went wrong, and then he squandered his leverage. And so I have to keep it real with you, and I have to tell you what should have been done. So listen, ultimately, I don't. I wouldn't have a problem with him pushing for Biden with a certain set of facts and with certain guarantees. But he didn't get those guarantees. So now I feel like when I see Bernie say stuff like this, you got to call it for what it is. Yes, he is 
basically overlooking or covering up Kamala's, you know, connections with Wall Street because Trump bad, which is basically, you know, the parody, the caricature of a, the run-of-the-mill Democrat who's willing to overlook all the flaws of Democrats because Trump bad. Well, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be like that. You could both totally acknowledge that Trump is every bit as bad as they say, while also holding Democrats accountable. And I don't see that from Bernie now. I don't. I see him being rah-rah team, and it's embarrassing. And it's not the Bernie we know and love. And I get it. A lot of you are going to watch this segment, and you're going to go, I'm being too hard on him. Am I? Am I? I, You know, I'm in the segment, I'm talking about how much I love Bernie and how important he is and how he opened the eyes of so many people. I know, in, I know he's doing what he thinks is the best thing. So I'm not going after his intentions. His intentions are pure. And anybody who does question his intentions, I think they're dead wrong. He's proven himself over the years that he's always going to do what he thinks is the best thing. But I disagree with him as to exactly how to go about this. And now the rift is getting bigger and bigger. You can't even denounce up front and just be like, yeah, no, there's, there's no excusing that. Wall Street being happy because of Kamala. That's not okay. Can't say that and then say Trump bad? It's just disappointing. All right, next. The post office has been in the news a lot recently because Trump is trying to undermine them and underfund them. So here's a little explainer on that. This comes as the Postal Service tonight is reportedly warning 46 states that mail-in ballots may not be returned in time to count for the election because of lags in mail delivery. Why a lag? Because the Postal Service is starved for cash at a time when demand for mail-in ballots has never been higher. All the while, President Trump's hand-picked Postmaster General, a campaign donor, is behind a major restructuring of the agency that includes cuts to employee hours, banning extra trips to deliver mail on time, and removing hundreds of high-volume mail processing machines across the country. All of these moves will very likely lead to even more log jams, something the Postmaster General admitted in a letter to employees, saying this, Unfortunately, this transformative initiative has had unintended consequences that impacted our overall service levels. The President today says he'll continue to oppose $25 billion in funding for the Postal Service unless Democrats give in to his demands. Would you be willing to accept the $25 billion for the Postal Service, including the $3.5 billion to shut the And so what I want is what the American people want. So if they were to give you that, they yeah, would they sign would. off on the money for the Postal yeah, Service? Yeah, but they're not giving it to me. They're giving it to the American people. I mean, they're giving it to a brief. Yeah. I would, I would certainly do that, too. It seems more than clear now. He has no desire to allow this to happen because he said the quiet part out loud yesterday. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. If they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it. 
So look, there's no way to know for sure if one party benefits more than the other from vote by mail, but it's crystal clear one party is more willing to consider it. A new Monmouth poll this week found that 72% of Democratic voters were either very or somewhat likely to vote by mail, compared to 65% of Republicans who said they were not at all likely to do so. It seems clear what the president's doing, trying to use the Postal Service to his advantage in the election. So this is one of those things that um, this has been going on for a long time. One of the oldest tricks in the book is that as you're doing something messed up, you go on the offense to, like, distract from the thing that you're doing. So what Trump's doing is that he's screaming, oh, my God, the election is going to be fraudulent. The election is going to be rigged. You got all these mail-in ballots, and who knows where they're even coming from, and millions of you know, dead people voting or, or undocumented immigrants voting. And he just all day long, he just makes these arguments and tries to undermine the election, undermine the election, undermine the election, undermine the election. Then he turns around and he's like, I mean, I gotta, I'm going to withhold funding from the Postal Service, to, which would effectively undermine the election. Because if you have vote by mail, you know, you have to meet the deadlines. And if you're underfunding the Postal Service, like one of the things they're doing is they're getting rid of these, um, these machines that they have, which divvies up the mail properly. They're removing a lot of these machines, which makes it harder to separate the mail and m- makes it take longer. So as he's screaming about, oh, my God, the election's going to be rigged, he's kind of trying to rig the election. Or at the very least, he's trying to slow down the mail-in voting. And as you can see, that apparently that would mean more Democratic votes are impacted than Republican votes. But I don't, the other part about that is, like, no, of course, this is also going to impact a lot of, like, Trump's voters in Florida, the older voters who are going to vote by mail in Florida. Like, that's going to impact them, too. So in some ways, he's shooting himself in the foot, which is just insane, which is why he actually, there was a story that came out, like, a week or two ago where he was trying to, like, change his comments to make the argument that, like, the Republicans want to vote by mail in Florida, like, that's totally cool, but the Democrats vote, I mean, come on. That's the problem. The problem is the election's going to be rigged, but if you're a Republican, please still vote, and you can do it by mail, and I'm totally fine with that. (laughs) So, um, I just, I hate that there's always, there's more and more stuff every day being added to the list of things that, like, we worry about. Like, oh, okay, are we going to not is, – is the whole election process going to be messed up as a result of stuff like this, like underfunding the Postal Service? And, and the other thing that's reminded me of is the trick that they do with voter ID because they, um, they love to do this with voter ID. They love to scream that voter fraud is such a big problem, so we need to have voter ID, and then places implement voter ID – And it's the voter ID that suppresses the vote. So they're the ones who are messing with the election as they wrongly say the election was wrong previously because we didn't have voter ID. And so there was like widespread voter fraud. There wasn't widespread voter fraud, but then they put in voter ID. And what happens? People who are very poor, low income, usually minority communities, they don't, they, many of them don't end up having the necessary ID, and so then their votes don't get counted, and then that's the real election tampering, is that you, you're trying to suppress the vote by putting more and more hurdles in people's way. Back in the day, it was just more brazen. 
whether whether it's a, a poll tax or whether it's a poll test. Remember that? The, the segregationist trick. So it's just another thing that we got to worry about, man. And apparently, like I was reading about this over the weekend, and there's been a war on the post office for a long time, and it's from corporatists in both parties. It's from neoliberal privatizers in both parties. In fact, Biden and Obama were going down that path and you know, picking people for the post office who are neoliberal crusaders. And Bernie had to, had to block them, had to stand up for the post office, and he stood with the unions, and he fought back against them. So this is a scourge in both parties where you have people who really ultimately want to privatize the post office and they move in that direction. And one of the tricks they use is to undermine it, undermine it like Trump is doing. But I think Trump thinks it also has the benefit of it would help him for the election if he were to do this. So it's ugly, man. I would just like to go one day without a new thing, learning about a new thing that is terrifying. All right, let's go to Ali Velshi. Ali Velshi, who's honestly one of the very rare, decent voices in mainstream media, he did a segment covering Trump's alleged peace deal between the UAE and Israel. So they'll be normalizing relations. But, um, you know, pretty important group is kind of left out of this deal. But let's see what he has to say. Israel and the United Arab Emirates came to a deal to normalize relations between those countries, establish full diplomatic relations, and stop the further annexation of the West Bank by Israel. However, the historic agreement has left much of the Arab world divided, as the deal seemed to have largely erased the Palestinian cause from the narrative. To make matters worse, the deal comes amid a renewed blockade on fuel and escalating tensions between Israel and Gaza. Now, the Gaza Strip is literally a tiny strip of land that is considered to be the most densely populated area in the world. I traveled to Gaza last October and witnessed those struggles firsthand. Those who live in Gaza are in constant uh, blockade by the Israeli government. No food, no aid, no energy, uh, or even movement in and out of the country can come without approval. And yet there was no mention of this in the New Deal. In fact, Israel is blocking uh, the little fuel that Gaza does get from going in, which Gazans depend upon for their electricity. Back in 2019, I spoke to a young woman in Gaza about the difficulties of living with power only a few hours a day. People since, well, Gaza since 2006 has been suffering from an electrical crisis, and we enjoy only like three to six hours of electricity. So I'm, I'm sarcastic by saying enjoying. Israel is also further limited in already puny fishing area in the Mediterranean. Fishing is a major part of the Palestinian economy. This fisherman was shot in the eye by an Israeli patrol who said he was fishing outside the allowed boundaries. He claimed he was nowhere close. Stopping the annexation of the West Bank, another part of the Palestinian state, was part of the deal, but doesn't actually mean much. 
Nearly 600,000 Israeli settlers already live in the area, many under false pretenses created by and enforced by the Israeli military, despite the occupation of Palestine by Israel being uh, clearly against international law. So what is this deal really achieving? As with most things in the Middle East, nothing is cut and dry. So for a deeper look, I'm joined by my uh, colleague, NBC foreign correspondent, Matt Bradley. Matt? Yeah, Ali, you know, what this deal achieves, it actually does, it cannot be diminished. It achieves quite a lot. And this is going to contribute undoubtedly towards peace and stability in the region. That having been said, everything that you mentioned about the Palestinians is absolutely correct. And, you know, you can even see it, Ali, if you look at the formal statement that was issued by the United Arab Emirates just a couple of days ago. They mentioned the Palestinians once in the very end of their statement. The rest of it is laudatory about the role of the U.S. and Israel, and that's why there's just so much anger in the region about this. But again, I should state, for almost the entire diplomatic community, the world over, this is seen as a great new development. But for the Palestinians themselves, they see this as a betrayal by the UAE. And other people in their camp also see it that way. We've got to remember, Elliot, like you were saying, you know, this is going to uh, basically stop the idea that Benjamin Netanyahu might annex as much as a third of the West Bank, but it's a suspension. And Benjamin Netanyahu has made very clear in repeated comments ever since this deal became public that he intends to fully annex the West Bank in the same way that he had proposed before, that 30% of the West Bank. And this is what he considers to be just a delay. And it's also, you know, Ali, another example of Benjamin Netanyahu kind of pulling from other world leaders' tr uh, playbooks and basically creating this problem where he threatened to annex the, a lot of the West Bank and then takes credit for solving the problem. So this is, that's why a lot of Palestinians, a lot of people in the Arab world, are calling this little more than blackmail. What was done here was just, di uh, just basically averting a disaster that was of Israel's own making, that annexation of the West Bank, which, again, was just suspended. It hasn't been all-out canceled. And we've already been hearing from other groups like Iran and Turkey. They're furious about this because they consider themselves to be fully in the Palestinian camp. They are of the West Bank, which, again, was just suspended. It hasn't been all-out canceled. And we've already been hearing from other groups like Iran and Turkey. They're furious about this because they consider themselves to be fully in the Palestinian camp. They are the Palestinians' champion, both in the region and the world. And from what they can tell... This is not a good deal for the Palestinians because they aren't mentioned at all. Ali? So they were touting this as if it was some, you know, brilliant diplomatic breakthrough. And um, the fact of the matter is the group in the region which most desperately needs a peace deal and needs justice is totally left out. Totally left out. And originally they were reporting that, like, there will be no more expansion by Israel into the occupied territories. They're not going to do any more illegal settlements. It's going to be wonderful. And then immediately as, as those articles came out, um, Net, the Netanyahu government was like, that, that's not true at all. We didn't say that at all. So we're, not, we're, we're suspending expansion temporarily. We're not canceling expansion. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? You know what this is? This is a publicity stunt in a desperate attempt to try to notch some victories for Trump so that Trump has a better chance in the election because they all want Trump to get reelected because Trump does whatever Israel wants. 
Trump does whatever Saudi Arabia wants, whatever the Gulf states want. So they know, okay, in the case of Israel, well, we've got to keep those subsidies flowing. So, and we've got to keep these weapons deals flowing. So let's do whatever we can to try to help them out. So let's do, make up this, uh, this peace deal and act like it's some sort of giant breakthrough when it's not. The Palestinians got screwed. You know, they're, they're left on the side, ignored, and they'll continue to be oppressed. So, it, like, it's painfully easy to trick the media these days. Credit to Ali Velshi for doing a good segment, but he's like the only one who does a good segment. Again, you go read the initial reports, and they acted like this was some sort of amazing breakthrough deal. It's incredible. You have no idea. We were finally getting peace in the Middle East, kind of, sort of, not really, actually not at all, because the Palestinians are still getting screwed. So this is Trump going full marketing mode, where now we can pretend, like, I got an amazing, amazing peace deal. It's an incredible peace deal. It's really great. It's totally wonderful. It's, it's totally out of this world. I love it. It's so great. And I expect more of these tricks moving forward where Trump can try to notch some fake victories to have something to, you know, argue with Biden about where he acts like, oh, yeah, well, I got peace in the Middle East. What did you do, basement man? It's really pathetic. It's really pathetic. But anyway, that was a good segment by Ali Velshi. And don't fall for these ridiculous head fakes. All right, now Trump attacked Biden for the dumbest reason ever. Here we go. President Trump managed to go after Biden for the dumbest of reasons. Here's a Fox segment on it. President Trump calling the proposal regressive and unscientific, but public opinion appears to be with Biden. A new Fox News poll showing more than 70% of Americans support a requirement to wear a mask outside the home. Jackie Heinrich is reporting live from Wilmington, Delaware for us this morning. Jackie, good morning. Good morning to you, Sandra. Good morning, Trace. Well, 16 states currently do not have statewide mask mandates, all of them run by Republican governors, and former Vice President Joe Biden was talking to them when he called on governors to enact a nationwide mask mandate. The estimates by the experts are it will save over 40 thousand lives in the next three months, 40,000 lives, people act responsibly. And uh, it's not about your rights, it's about your responsibilities as an American. White House reaction was swift. President Trump said Biden is politicizing the pandemic and defended his administration's approach of urging people to wear masks while focusing the work of the government on therapeutics and vaccines. But the president also suggested what Biden's asking is draconian big government. He wants the president of the United States with the mere stroke of a pen to order over 300 million American citizens to wear a mask for a minimum of three straight months. If the president has the unilateral power to order every single citizen to cover their face in nearly all instances, what other powers does he have? 
Remember, back in June, Biden suggested he would use executive power as president to mandate masks in public, but yesterday he did not say his administration would enact a federal mandate for masks or call on the White House to enact one. He notably called on states to take the lead. Only Kamala Harris discussed what their administration would enact, talking about testing, tracing, and funding of vaccines. Now, the back and forth comes after a new Fox News poll shows a majority of voters in every party favor requiring masks, and more than half think the federal government failed to respond seriously enough to the pandemic. Jackie Heinrich, thank you. I just, I find this incredible. Biden is a target-rich environment, and the thing that Trump leaned into there is he wants to do a, a nationwide mask mandate. I find that about as tyrannical as seatbelts, which I don't really find to be very tyrannical. I view it as kind of like a basic regulation that would save tens of thousands of lives. Now, listen... There is a more complex conversation about the enforcement mechanism. How do you go about enforcing something like a universal mask mandate? And I think there are reasonable disagreements there. So, you know, one person might say, give people a ticket, find them if they don't wear a mask. Somebody else might say, no, like you're going to have to put, put them in a, a prison cell. Um, other people might say, don't even really necessarily enforce it you're more just trying to create um, a cultural and societal trend where even if there's no official law enforcement over it, it's severely frowned upon when people don't do it. So there are different approaches that you can take in terms of how you try to implement it. Um, but I, the idea is by no stretch of the imagination absurd, bad, and in fact, Biden, what Biden really was saying is um, he would want each state on their own to do a mask mandate, which is really, funny enough, a, a conservative position. Like, he's, he doesn't want to do it at the federal level, nor does he know if he has the authority to, but he would incentivize them to do it at the state level. I don't know exactly how, but that's what he would want to do. Um, so it, it's not... That's not a crazy position. That's not an absurd position. It would save tens of thousands of lives. I keep bringing up Japan as a really good success story because what Japan did is um, they mandated that they, it, they basically have universal masks. I should be clear. I actually don't know how they got to that position, if it was just a cultural thing or if it was an actual law. But either way, they basically had universal masks and they had about a thousand COVID deaths for a very long time. And they only did like limited economic shutdowns. Now there's been an uptick recently, but there's been an uptick almost everywhere recently because things have slowly started to open up um, everywhere, but they still handled it relatively well. And the main difference is that pretty much everybody wears masks. So it seems like a really important thing. And Trump is dealing with 170,000 deaths right now, millions and millions of cases. And he's just, He's looking to score some cheap political points by attacking Biden over this one. Really, he should be thinking about it seriously himself. He should be, you know, maybe implementing it himself, leaning into it himself, because, again, it would save tens of thousands of lives. So it's really, I'm just stunned at how his political instincts have really gone haywire. 
and he loves attacking Biden as far left, which is preposterous, but then also now attacking him over stuff like, hey, maybe we should have a universal mask mandate. It's just, it's, it's tough to see. And even with that being the case, now with the new poll out, we might have a tighter race than we did previously. It looked like Biden was running away with it, but the most recent CNN poll has Biden only up by four points. So is that a trend? I don't know. We have to see. It could be an outlier poll or not. We have to wait and see. But um, it's really amazing how terrible both of these candidates are and the lines of attack that they use. Because it's like watching a bunch of political novices go at it. I mean, this really, it's just pathetic. But this is one of those instances where I think Trump is totally misfiring. Because even the polls show, people understand it's a freaking pandemic, dude. Of course people would understand the idea of universal masks. Okay. All right, let's do some foreign policy stuff. So Fox News dove headfirst into some anti-Iran propaganda. Let's see what they had to say. Mike Pompeo calling out members of the United Nations Security Council after they overwhelmingly rejected extending the Iran arms embargo. I regret, too, that the whole world didn't join against the world's largest state sponsored terrorists to ensure that they can't have weapon systems to present risk. The United States is determined to make sure that the Iranians and this regime, this theocratic regime, doesn't have the capacity to inflict even more harm on the world. The embargo is set to expire in October. Russia and China predictably oppose the U.S. proposal, while several of our European allies abstain from the vote. Here with her reaction is State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortega. Morgan, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Okay, so Iran is the, is the world's uh, greatest sponsor of terrorism. We had an arms embargo. The United States says, let's renew it because it makes sense. And almost everyone is against us or abstains. Why? Yeah, there was a real lack of moral courage at the UN Security Council on Friday night. This is a 13-year arms embargo, uh, or even longer potentially, and this has lasted through Republican and Democrat administrations. This is something uh, that the world at the UN Security Council has recognized is needed. And why is that, as you said in your intro? Because Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism. So just so your viewers know, Pete, what the, what the world, uh, which those countries represented at the Security Council, decided to do on Friday night was to quietly abstain in order to allow Iran to now have the ability in October to purchase conventional weapons from China and from Russia. Now, mind you, uh, there's a lot of people who were against this, namely Israel, namely the countries in the, in the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council. These are the countries that are directly affected by the malign behavior of Iran in the region, the countries who are susceptible to being attacked uh, with these conventional weapons because Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism, said, please don't do this. But our friends in Europe, uh, the United Kingdom, sadly, France, Germany, they didn't even have the courage to vote no. They just abstained. That was pathetic rank propaganda. I mean, that's just, that's doing the bidding of the neocons, doing the bidding of the security state, Pentagon, CIA, 
I mean, this, it's pathetic. So let's run through it. First of all, they, they keep repeating this, and they've done it for a long time now. Iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism. They never tell you how. They never give you the metric because that's bogus. That's just totally not true. There's a better argument for Saudi Arabia being the largest state sponsor of terrorism because they build you know, radical madrasas all over the place pushing their Salafist, uh, Wahhabi, fundamentalist uh, version of Islam. And, you know, Saudi Arabia are the key exporters of that ideology. By the way, hilarious, because we arm arguably the largest state sponsor of terrorism it, with multi-billion dollar weapons deals, and then, by the way, come to find out that, of course, they're in bed with jihadists on the ground in Syria, for example, and elsewhere. And they're also carrying out a, a genocide in Yemen, as we've talked about time and time again on this show. Unfortunately, this is not something that the rest of the media likes to talk about almost at all. So we arm the largest state sponsor of terrorism, and we're whining because of an arms embargo is expiring for Iran. Now, stop and think about that. So this is a conventional weapons arms embargo that's expiring, and we're mad that some other countries were like, yeah, we're not going to re-up it. We pulled out of the nuclear agreement with Iran. We pulled out of it. We had an agreement. We pulled out of it. Then we bombed a top military commander, Soleimani. So, and we also bombed them in a couple different places. So when we broke the agreement and we bombed them, why on earth would they ever agree to an arms embargo after that? Because just, you know how they always say about Israel? Israel has a right to self-defense. Does Iran have a right to self-defense? Or is it, by definition, never self-defense if it's an official U.S. enemy, an official baddie that we're dealing with? They never have a right to self-defense because we're going to define what they do all the time as offensive, even if it's not. Even if it's not. And by the way, it's not. We're the ones who violated the um, nuclear agreement, and then we also bombed them and... Then we turn around and, and get mad and cry because an arms embargo is expiring. And they're like, no, we would like conventional weapons because we would also like to defend ourselves. And by the way, these are the same people, th these same Fox News hosts are crazy about the Second Amendment. And they think the more guns there are, the more peace there is because you reach a point of stability if everybody's armed. Now they're arguing for effectively the opposite on the national stage. Certain people are so bad that they can't even have the weapons. Interesting. Does that work for individuals too? No, no. Individuals, everybody could have the weapon. But on the national stage, oh, I'm, I'm against what is effectively a Second Amendment on the national stage, and I want to disarm actors who I find to be beyond the pale. Now, by the way, another fact that nobody really likes to bring up is that we're sanctioning even medicine going into Iran. So they have medicine shortages, and some people are dying as a result of that. So we're sanctioning medicine, we're bombing them, and then we cry because the arms embargo is running out and, and people don't want to re-up it. Listen, you can't take the U.S. seriously with these absurd moral lectures because as we arm the actual number one state sponsor of terrorism, we cry about a country that's not the number one state sponsor of terrorism maybe getting weapons. Guys, we had Saudi Arabia on the Human Rights Council. 
Like, can it get any more absurd? Of course it can't. Of course it can't. But this is what we do. We try to do the propaganda. We try to overthrow, you know, the governments that are not under our thumb. And the propaganda just gets so absurd, so ridiculous, that anybody who's paying attention and knows this stuff even a little bit is going to roll their eyes at this stuff. I mean, this is embarrassing. Of course they're going to want conventional weapons. Of course they're going to want nuclear weapons. And the real reason is a deterrent to U.S. aggression. I keep not changing the freaking things over my shoulder. Annoying. So I hate to do this segment, but I'm going to do this segment. (laughs) I feel compelled to show you all what went viral on Twitter the other day. Um, We may have found the real-life Clayton Bigsby from Chappelle Show. In other words, the black, white supremacist um, who hates black people. He's black, but he kind of hates black people. Now, maybe that's a little unfair. Maybe it's a little bit of a stretch. But is it really? I don't know. You tell me. Let's watch. from about two dozen members and supporters of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Regardless how the next person feels, I'm not going to take my flag down. If I got anything to do with it, ain't no money that going to come down. Daniel Sims says he was adopted as a child. My whole family's white. Went to all-white school, grew up in all-white neighborhoods. My grandfather was white, and he was the main one that fought in this war here. And he's told me everything I know. He explains how he'd feel if the statues and flag were relocated. It may make my blood boil if they just come up here and feel like they can just tear it down. I don't see me still living if they do that right there. That monument ain't hurting nobody. That monument ain't killing my soul. It ain't talking bad to nobody. It ain't, it ain't, it ain't even racist. By the way, there's another video. Um, somebody, somebody tweeted it at me and I... I saw this guy, there's a a black woman who walks up to this group of guys protesting for the Confederate monument or flag or whatever it is, and one of them says, like, America, love it or leave it, and then the black guy goes, why don't you go back to Africa? So the black guy tells a black woman because somebody had said something to the black woman, and so she goes up and she's recording it, and she's like, why don't you tell me what you told me before, or something like that. And then they're like, hey, man, America, love it or leave it. And the black guy says to a black woman, why don't you go back to Africa? Amazing. Amazing. Now, first of all, let me say, Congrats to this guy on winning the 2024 Republican nomination for president. Um, You know, I'd love to have a conversation with this dude's grandfather. I guess he passed away, but 
fascinating. So you fought for the Confederacy. Fought for the Confederacy. He must have been... Seems like he would have been absurdly old. But anyway... um, And then you adopted a black kid? The story is just, like, it's mind-blowing. Like, in in the Clayton Bigsby skit, the Dave Chappelle-Clayton Bigsby skit, the black-white supremacist, you should watch it if you haven't, there's one point where they take his hood off and everybody sees he's a black-white supremacist, and somebody in the audience, their head, like, literally explodes, and you see... That's me thinking about this guy's grandfather, who apparently was pro-Confederacy, which means pro-slavery, and then he adopted and raised a black kid or something. Trying to wrap my mind around all this stuff, bro. Trying to wrap my mind around all this stuff. I want to be kind. I want to be nice. You know, like a lot of people, you, they, we, they make this argument all the time. Oh, it's, it's history. It's not hatred. Okay, but then why did you tell the woman who was black to go back to Africa? I don't, like, things mean what they mean. I guess there's some nuance and, and there's a spectrum of the interpretation of what it means, but we can't disagree with the origin of it. We know what the origin is. We know that this particular Confederate flag came about in the Civil Rights era, and the whole point of it was to say, screw you to the people who wanted to end segregation. Screw you to the people who wanted equality, civil rights and voting rights. That's the whole point of that Confederate flag. This isn't even the original Confederate flag. This is the one that came about during the 1960s as a direct response to the civil rights movement to say, screw you to them. Same with all the Confederate monuments across the South. They all were, during the civil rights movement, to say, hey, 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 know your place. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're putting up a monument to a Klansman. Know your role, know your place. And then you got, I mean, I guess it's always, there's always going to be some people, right? There's always going to be some people. And here we have a guy, a black guy who is like super duper pro-Confederacy. Twitter was blowing up with this, bro. Twitter was blowing up with this. People are like, that is literally the, this is the Dave Chappelle sketch. This is the Dave Chappelle sketch right here. I would, the other person I want to talk to about this, other than this dude's grandfather, who I can't because he's dead, um... I'd also like to talk to all the other white people there with him. I'd like to talk to him, too. Um, and I'd like to talk to Dave Chappelle about this and see what he thinks about this guy. I'd love to, to hear what people think about him. Identity is such a weird thing, isn't it? I feel like identity is a very, very strange thing. And clearly a lot of, a lot of it, it really does come from your formative years when you're a kid. And this guy obviously related. He views himself as like, I'm just like all the, the, uh, the white people around me. And if they believe in things that are against people who look like me, well, I guess that's okay because they're not talking about me. They're talking about the other people who look like me. But I'm one of the good ones. I don't know. I want to know what's going on in his mind. I do. I want to know exactly what's going on in his mind. I'd love to hear it out. Not even from, I'm not even talking about from like, I'm going to be super judgy perspective. From a sociological perspective, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Like I'm really mind blown over this. So I, I'd love to, I'd love to hear it out. Some sociologists should seek this guy out and, and, you know, 
really get some interesting information on them because this is wild. Okay. All right, final story of the day, Jen Perlman. So we have an election tomorrow in Florida. Um, It's the 23rd district, and that is Debbie Wasserman Schultz's district. Now, she's one of the primary Democratic enemies of the left. Remember, she was directly involved in, in rigging the 2016 primary against Bernie Sanders. She's one of the favorites of the predatory payday loan industry. Um, she's also staunchly pro-Israel. Um, so there are a lot of issues with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She's a deep, deep corporatist. She's, um, you know, part of Democratic leadership. She's exactly in line with the Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer philosophy. She hates the left. I mean, this is all obvious. So anyway, Tim Canova ran against her previously. There were questions as to the legitimacy of that election. It was a super sketchy election. Um, But nonetheless, she's still in power. Well, now Jen Perlman is running against Debbie. And um, the election is tomorrow. Florida's 23rd district, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. So I just want to show you uh, one of Jen Perlman's ads here so you see what she's all about. And then we'll discuss when we come back. really scary, and that's why it's a time for courage. The reason that we have the problems in this country that we have is not because we can't afford to take care of our people. It's because of greed. As a collective, we can only be as great as we treat the most oppressed among us. Our campaign is completely grassroots. We take no corporate money. We are tired of the same people doing the same things, being paid by the same corporate people. I would love to represent you in Washington. I'm Jen Froman, and I approve this message. No corporate PAC money, supports Medicare for all. Um, I know she's, she is a, a viewer of this show. And um, if you're in Florida's 23rd district, go vote for her. Go vote for her ASAP tomorrow. Wear your mask, do whatever you got to do, but go vote for her because, you know, I mean, it would, be, it would be amazing if we could replace one of the worst Democrats with somebody who no doubt would become one of the best Democrats because she's, she's all about it. All the policies that we care deeply about on this show, a social democratic agenda, um, she'll fight for it. So anyway, I just wanted to show you that ad, show you what she's about and just let everybody know because she has an election tomorrow. What are the polls like? I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. I haven't seen a single poll on the race. Um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is typically viewed as somebody who's somewhat untouchable, I guess you could say, Teflon, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. We don't know exactly, again, how or why that's the case. There were many sketchy things about the previous election, but putting that aside, um, you know, everybody needs to do their part and do whatever you can in order to get uh, Jen elected. So anyway, we wish Jen the best, 
And again, her election is tomorrow in uh, Florida's 23rd district. Fingers crossed. Let's hope we can maybe notch a big W here. Okay. All right, guys. Out of time, baby. I'll talk to you guys soon. Love you. I'm out. Peace.